You're listening to Mike and Kristen. The podcast. I'm Mike, a musician, writer, and producer. And I'm Kristen, a painter, writer, and designer. Our show is all about following dreams, taking chances, and what life as an artist is really about. Together, we bring you weekly guest interviews and thought-provoking conversations. Let's go! Welcome, everyone, to this week's episode of Mike and Kristen. Kristen. Oh. I'm not. I was trying to do it so I didn't get the first, so it sounded sloppy. Okay, well, you I, that worked. Like that, try it again, and I could show you how that I can do it properly. I could point. No, I I could do it with my eyes closed. Okay. Oh look, my eyes are closed. Of Mike, Mike and Kristen. Kristen. See, there, eyes closed. You did. I think you're better with your eyes closed, even. No, I was trying to do it. Okay. So I wasn't on. So it just sounded. Oh, oh no, here we are. For, I'm afraid. For, forgot what the name of our show was. Yeah, you nailed it. You did really well. Yeah. Okay. Well, well, welcome, folks. This is the Mike and Kristen podcast. Hope everyone's doing great out there. We're so glad you're tuning in on this Wednesday. If you're listening on Wednesday, if you're listening on any other day, that is awesome, too. We love every day of the week. Every we're, day's a good day. Saturday's just, radio day. Sadio. 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 <laughs> Sadio. Saturday radio day. Sadio. Did you mean to do that one? No. Oh. You were just in that headspace. Yeah. Nonetheless, we're happy everybody's here. We're happy to be here ourselves. Spring is in the air. We've got lots of fun, creative projects coming up for the summer. Yeah, you didn't even mention on air about Togetherland yet. Oh, my goodness. So, like, what, 100 years ago, I said that we had exciting news to share, and then there's was this just void in the air. But I am opening, we are opening our very own gallery this summer. We're calling yeah. it Togetherland. It's in the uh, United Church in Ingramport, which is on the St. Margaret's Bay Road between Tantallon, where we live, and Hubbard's, where we play. Yeah, it's uh, you're in like the the room attached to the church. What would you call it? The I guess the hall. So there's the church. sanctuary where they would have a, a session of yeah. a session of church. <laughs> and then I'm yeah, right next door and it's this really yeah. amazing big church hall space. We're gonna have a ton of art in the walls. You'll be creating in there new art. Uh we'll have our book for sale, all the stuff I create, my CDs, vinyls, the merchandise from the town heroes and Michael S. Ryan. And yeah, probably live. I'll do some live shows while you're painting, and just a lot of, a lot of partying going on there in the church. There's a lot of ideas that I have, but I will only be. I'll be opening early June and closing end of October. So that's a pretty tight amount of time to get too ambitious. It's so perfect, perfect. Amount I'm trying of time. to rein in the ideas and think about the realm of possibility, but I am running a little bit wild right now. I have to admit. It's uh, very exciting, and I know everyone we talked to is very excited, and it's just going to be a really cool space to create and just spend a lot of time. It's right by the ocean. Yeah, it's going to be just so hot in there. I already know it'll <laughs> yeah. be like a sauna, but we're steps away from the ocean, so we'll just rotate, cool yeah. off, and then come back and do some painting. Yeah, we have to get brave. It's not like a sandy beach. <laughs> it's like rock and seaweed, so uh, we're going to have to overcome some fears i'm pretty good about things touching my legs though in the water yeah yeah 
<laughs> in uh, one of the chapters in our book is about our uh, honeymoon in uh, or our, in our elopement in Jamaica. And uh, I felt something on my leg, something bite my leg. <laughs> and uh, I said it and you just took off like a bat out of hell to leave me to die in the water. <laughs> I was just it's alarmed. Like, I my body re- responded in it was that like way. Two hours after we got married, I'm like, something bit my foot, and you were like Michael Phelps, just bolting the sea, <laughs> bolting out of the sea. I was thinking about you the whole time. Yeah, we thanks. survived. But uh, yes, Togetherland is coming this June. And I got new sneakers today. You did. They are pretty handsome looking, I gotta say. <laughs> the, the, well, and t- t- tell everybody why you got the sneakers well, really is the I've, exciting I got part. The, I got the call to play in the ECMA charity basketball game. Yeah. Just going to be happening on next Wednesday, uh, May 3rd. I think it's the 3rd. I'm just bringing up a calendar right now. Okay, we'll go with May 3rd for now. May 3rd, yeah. What time and where? 6 p.m. at uh, St. Mary's University. So everybody bring their signs out and cheer Mike on cheer at the big on, game. Yeah. And then you've got a hockey game a couple of days after that. Hockey game Are you playing on music Saturday. at the ECMA? Yeah, or? I play two shows. Two shows and... Uh, two sporting events and a couple of like, video performances. So it's a pretty busy mm. week. Uh, a fair bit of charity work, which is great to be a part of. I always like doing that. And uh, I didn't play in a basketball game in about 20 years, so I don't have basketball sneakers. And now you can't get a pair of basketball sneakers like back in the day for like 65 bucks. Like the cheapest pair is like 140 well, everything is more expensive than 20 years so, ago or so 20 minutes ago. But When I was growing up, I always wanted a pair of Air Jordans but couldn't afford them. And I still can't afford them, but <laughs> I bought a pair because I got to play in one game and they were the only pair there that fit me. Sometimes you have to treat yourself. Yeah. You made the team, you earned it. Life is good. <laughs> 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 yeah, I, I'm gonna. My feet are gonna look good. Everything else is gonna look bad, though. Well, speaking of looking good and sounding good, and just having the most beautiful soul in the whole wide world, today's guest, Rose Morrison, checks all of those boxes and then some. She is amazingly talented, very wise, a great person, thoughtful, just in touch with the. The big frequency of the universe and what ties us all together, I think, anyway. We spoke before Rose arrived how you would have more familiarity maybe with the musical background of her life and just, you know, the industry, something that you guys could connect about. But she and I also just completed this 12-week art program, The Artist's Way, that we discuss as well. So we felt like we had each of us a unique perspective coming into this but I also really loved hearing some of her stories that were just these grandiose adventures that neither one of us had any idea happened with her yeah and she gained I guess you would say fame from from a very early age with the Cotters going around North America playing places like Carnegie Hall and just really big stages and festivals and but yeah, by the time she was 15, she had been all over North America. Uh, yeah, and, and not really necessarily. She described it as being a child in an adult's world, yeah. essentially. And we talk about kind of the, I guess, the pros and cons to that. But the unique nature of it, really. 
it's a it's super fascinating story and her, her her life in general is really awesome and and then at, she also now is really getting into the spiritual side of things and just really trying to I guess grow and help other people along the way. I think she helped us. Yeah. And for sure. it was a really vulnerable conversation we all had. Um I cried with her even tuning her fiddle. So <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you can tell what kind of state I was in, but it was also this particular podcast recording was also really special because we had our mutual friend Steph McNamara taking photographs throughout yeah. the session and Steph was very quiet and just listening, of course, and, and taking photos. But I felt like her presence here just really added that extra energy to the room. Yeah, it was a special, special conversation. And yeah, she didn't say a word the whole time because she was she was focused on capturing what we were doing. But she's just a... Uh, a fun loving person and yeah you could you could tell well i every time i looked over she had tears coming down her <laughs> eyes just listening to the conversation we all so, cried so yeah it was uh pretty special and rose played a song at the end which maybe we'll just say the name of it and everything right now and so we can just go right into it when the conversation's done and we don't have to interrupt saying, here's this song by Rose. Yeah, rather than do the introduction, we'll just let Rose kind of give us our lullaby. and uh, beautiful. This is a song that she wrote. Uh, It's called Hansard's Wine. She wrote it with a friend uh, um, from West Cary named Brendan Bagley. And we have a treat in being able to add that to the episode to close us out. Yeah, so stick around till the very end. And yeah, he'll hear Rose play a beautiful, beautiful song on the the fiddle or violin. Which one? Uh, But yeah, let's just jump into this conversation with her. And thanks for tuning in, folks. Hope you really like this one. I know we both did. And yeah, it felt like a, a really special conversation. Just a small nap now. (laughs) (laughs) Everyone put a hat on over their eyes to keep the light out. And did you choose your hat yet, Rose? Did you? Did one stick out to you yet? Oh, I like the co-op. Yeah, just the green. I've been attracted to green lately. That feels like a very Cape Breton answer to have chose the green co-op hat. (laughs) Like, is that where they sell the feed or is it the other co-op? Yeah. Yeah. Is that what your local grocery store is? Yeah. 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 I think same in Inverness. We have. The co-op, it's called. Co-op. Co-op. Yeah, I have a member number now. Which was a really big day in my life. Oh, nice. Yeah. What it, will you say it on air? Well, she can because other people could steal it, right? Or but does that, that rack you up she points? She would get points. Oh, I get the points. Yeah. yeah. Maybe, I mean, maybe it's worth revealing yeah. then. I, 3342. <laughs> That's my parents' phone number. 2583342. No, it's Ash. Yeah. This stuff has been happening the last two weeks. <laughs> I'm so glad. I shouldn't I, have said my parents' phone number there, but uh, anyway. That's that's magic. Yeah. Magic is here. Wow. Okay. So other kind of serendipitous things with numbers or oh, yeah. that number? Like, 
What uh, makes you say that? Well, I was just down in Memphis and I was talking about another moment that was pure magic. And, uh, and then I was recording a voice note to my friend uh, and I looked down on the ground and I was standing on a grate and the grate said 2989. And that's my birthday, November 29th, 1989. Oh. So while I was sharing the story about how magic was uh was present there was more magic (laughs) yeah this feels though so you i feel like magic really does kind of just follow you around or maybe you create it or just embody it so this is not surprising Uh, the co-op number and all that's neat yeah that's that's the way it goes that's in magic land which is our house (laughs) in hot jupiter sounds this studio well, if anyone wants to throw their toonie in and put three, three, four, two on it, yeah. um, do you know about the toonie at the co-op? I don't. I do not. No. You know, I, I don't actually know how often they draw it. It might be every week, every month. Not sure. But you put a toonie in this little tiny envelope and you put your co-op number on it and then they draw. And, and then you win. The winner gets all of the toonies. Yeah, I think maybe half of it goes towards something great like the rink or... Yeah. yeah. Fire department or something like that. I need to brush up on my co-op. You're a member now. Lottery knowledge. <laughs> but I am a member and uh, that felt really good. So you're in Bidek right now. Yeah. Big, big Bidek. <laughs> big Bidek. Yes. Yeah. I've I've been corrected on this before. <laughs> okay. What's the difference? Bidek and Big Bidek. Uh, big <laughs> you're Bidek like they're just big. two different places. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> No, it's it's out it's out in the valley outside of the village. Okay. Yeah. Did you know this, Mike? That there was a difference. Well, it's, to me, it's just a different place name, and I respect the mm-hmm. northeast Margaree versus southwest Margaree. They are two separate places, you know. Yeah. There you go. You just that's little towns have their their pride attached to their name, and I assume that. Big Bedeckers are quite proud of where they're from, and <laughs> they may hold grudges against people from regular Bedeck, little Bedeck, normal Bedeck, whatever you want to call it. Well, my father's from Washabuck, but lower Washabuck. Okay. So, yeah, yes. it's important, especially in Cape Breton, it's important to have that detail. Yeah. And did you, you grew up in Bedeck? Well, outside of Bedeck, A little yeah. Bit, yeah. <laughs> but small, small town Cape Breton. Yeah, I grew up in Port Bevis, yeah. um, so that's uh, on the highway about 10 minutes from Bedeck. But yeah, yeah I grew up um, uh, going to school in Bedeck, and my parents, uh, my my mother's family uh, grew up in Bedeck. Yeah. My father's from Lower Washabuck. So it's neat because when you're in Bedeck and you look across the water, you can see Washabuck. Mm. So it's like... From both sides of the lake. And when did music come into your life? Well, I remember seeing Natalie McMaster on the Fred Penner show. Legend. And my family, like my mother's side of the family, they're very creative. I have a well-known uncle, JP and Charlie. Um, okay. He was a ventriloquist comedian in the 80s. But oh, uh, nice. no, no uh, family members have been professional musicians. Yeah. Uh, so I didn't really grow up like my first, uh, my first cassette tape was Stomp and Tom because I, uh, I like to stomp my feet, like going up the stairs, uh, at elementary. 
And there was like an outdoor supervisor and he used to call me Stompin' Tom. So when I like was at the drugstore and saw a cassette tape Stompin' Tom, I'm like, this is my man. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so that's how I discovered Stompin' Tom. And then my second con- uh, cassette tape, I think, was Sync because my friend was like, Sync is really cool. Um, so you have a real genre. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and then my third different. cassette tape was Buddy McMaster. So. There you go. Back to the fiddle. <laughs> yeah. Back to the fiddle. So that was thanks to Natalie. So yeah, I just, I didn't grow up. Uh, my family, they, my brother wasn't after becoming a musician either at the time. So yeah, I saw Natalie play on the Fred Penner show and yeah. it was a Saturday morning. My mother was working at the post office and uh, my father came up the stairs and I was like, Dad, who is this person? Because um, I was just floored. It was like the How coolest. old were you? I was seven. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And uh, and my dad was like, oh, Lord, that's Natalie McMaster. She's from here. And my mind was blown. Yeah. Um, but yeah, and I remember saying that's what I want to do. Yeah. Like, I just knew it. Um, I was sad when she crawled back into the hollow log because I was like, I want more. <laughs> and uh, And then within like... I think a week or two, a note went home at school about how there were Saturday morning classes at the Gala College and summer camps as well. But I was, um, so anyway, that's that's where I started. Wow. And did you get a fiddle shortly after? Well, it took a lot of convincing. I think yeah. I was a kid with a lot of uh, dreams and excitement. And, uh, you know, I, I talked about like figure skating or hockey or... Um, I used to put woolen socks on and like do my triple axles. So my yeah. dream was I, I would still love to be a figure skater, yeah. which you're a figure skater. Is... I was a figure okay. skater. Okay. But, I mean, I still have figure skates and enjoy doing laps around the ice, but I wouldn't be throwing myself in the air to do any triple double sows or yeah. anything. Uh, but Well, that was that was my initial dream. But um, so it took some convincing to get a fiddle, but. Uh, I just remember one day, like, really digging my heels in and going, yeah. this needs, I really need this. And I came home from school, and my father was in Sydney that day, and he picked up this little half-size fiddle, and it nice. was open on my bed when I came home. Mm. And then my brother got hockey socks that day. So it was a really big, that was a big day. Big it's day not always the- as a kid that, or or I should say as an adult, that you can look back at that moment. Like not everyone has that defining moment, but yeah. I always find it very curious when people can have that distinct memory that kind of has set them on a life path. Oh, it's been, it, yeah, it completely has, uh, uh, my whole life has been in some way centered around playing the fiddle, which yeah. when you're seven years old, you never think about it that way. Sure. You know, I didn't. But that's what that was the seed that was planted. Was Absolutely. it was it uh, f- just fun then? Oh, yeah. 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 I loved it. I loved it. Um, I often tell this story, but uh, it was my friend's birthday party. She lives out Hunter's Mountain and uh, Lower, huh? no. <laughs> <laughs> and I was learning one of the first tunes I was learning by ear um, off of a Natalie cassette tape and stop rewind stop rewind but I remember my mom being like you're gonna miss the birthday party and I did I was just like so focused and in the zone in the zone and um so yeah it was recently I was playing a live stream and I apologized to my friend for missing her birthday party (laughs) and I played that tune so but yeah I it was it was such an escape in so many ways I say that in a positive way um but it really was 
a place of prayer and meditation without me even understanding it yeah. that way. And so you get the fiddle at seven, eight ish. Yeah. And by twelve, you're a professional musician yeah. with the Cotters. Yeah, I had I had goals, I had dreams. Um I remember seeing Solan Chava play at the Gala College. And I remember coming home and crying and just being like, I want to be in a band. And I was, I must have been like eight or nine at the yeah. time. And then when I was 10 is when I met, um, well, before that, my brother started playing guitar. So I was playing uh, for bus tours at Giselle's Motel in Medec. And uh, I was getting these American dollar bills. Nice. And so I remember coming home one day and I had like 70 bucks American. And my my brother at the time would go to the post office and help my mom like change the garbages. And I think he made like 40 bucks or 50 bucks um, every couple of weeks. So I said to my brother, Jimmy, if you want to come and play guitar, like I'll share the tips. So that was... I, that's when he learned his first three chords. Yeah. <laughs> that's motivation. And that, so, that's how you started playing with him? Yeah. No, so nice. we just started playing. And then um, we were asked to play a benefit in Donkin. Yeah. And uh, and that's where we met uh, Kieran and Fiona McGilvery, who were the other half of the Cotters. So, yeah, we were 10, 11, 12, and 13 years old when we started. My brother was 13. Oh. I was 10. So how did you, as four kids even come up with your name and develop yourself with somebody managing you or doing the booking like what did that aspect yeah, look like so Kieran and Fiona their father uh Alistair um he of course songwriter and they he and Bev had been in the industry so they really they did take over Alistair was the musical director and they really handled because yeah like I said my my folks had no uh uh, experience in the music industry so yeah we were very much under their direction yeah and your first record was released with warner right uh i i, I don't think we didn't sign until maybe second record Yeah. okay yeah i was playing with groovy girls at the time so i'm not really sure like the timeline of when the record were groovy girls they're like these little plush dolls um, oh yeah! Oh, I, thought, <laughs> I thought it was another band. Yeah, I thought oh, you were in a band <laughs> called Groovy Girls. <laughs> be a great band name. No, I mean that's how disconnected we were. Yeah, the, sure. Yeah. So even now, um, you know, people, uh, our sound man Mick, who was on the road with us, great man, but uh, he would be like, "Do you remember the time we were in Cincinnati?" And I just have zero uh, memory of. So like a big part of my life, for many reasons, but a big part of it is is. Such a blur. Yeah. And you started touring fairly early with the Cotters? Yeah. yeah. Uh, John McDermott played a huge role. Uh, we met him very early on. He was filming a PBS special in Cape Breton, and he was going to be singing Song for the Myra. And, and so that's how the connection of that happened. So he was doing the filming on the Myra, and, oh, Alistair's kids are in this band. And so... It, uh, yeah, I think we met him very quickly after we actually just started playing music together. Yeah. Uh, and he took us out on the road. So all of a sudden we are like hopping in our minivans and driving to Boston and Cape Cod and playing the Melody Tent for I don't know how many thousands of people, but. Unreal. Yeah. So, yeah, it was. How old were you when you played Carnegie Hall? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, I was. 
15, I think. Yeah, yeah we were on the road with the chieftains. That's crazy. Yeah. I mean, so many of those experiences, uh, I, I didn't realize at the time, like, of how prestigious that hall is yeah. or would play Newport Folk Fest. And I remember being like, who's Bob Dylan? Like, uh, but, of course. I remember seeing Emmylou Harris, uh, I think it was uh, Merle Fest. Could be wrong. I think it was Merle Fest. And I remember seeing her come out on stage and I just cried. I just thought she was the most incredible person. I'm like, do people know who she is? You know, like that's how ignorant I was. But um, but yeah, that's how lucky I was to have such incredible musical influences at a young age because you, we were exposed. I remember, I think it was Boston um, and uh, John Prine was playing. Uh, and mm. so we got tickets. And so again, another person that I didn't know who he was, but I was listening to him when I was like 12, 13 years old going, this guy's a genius. <laughs> so somehow, you know, like I think that definitely started to uh, influence the fabric of, you know, my musicianship or my interests or, yeah. At that age, did you feel like you had a style of any sorts. Like I know for me, it took till I was in my well into my thirties. Like, I think I know what I'm doing now. Like I know that I kind of sound like this and I'm a product of all these influences at like 12 years old. It must be just almost impossible to really define yourself and what you're doing. Yeah. I think what stayed really true is that I was from Cape Breton and yeah. I felt very connected to being a fiddle player from Cape Breton even though you know I didn't come from a line of fiddle players uh I felt very connected to uh the teachers that I had at the Gaelic College so I had um Buddy McMaster uh I had Jerry Holland um Stan Chapman Sandy McIntyre uh there's there yeah there's so many amazing players so you know they all influence uh influence you as a player so I think I I've always felt like I had a lot of freedom to uh take on different styles or take on different you know often when I hear my friends that you know they come from musicians part of their art is keeping that sound alive which is yeah. so important um in traditional music but I also think the other side of it, uh, for me anyway, that I had a lot of freedom to, I, you know, I remember being backstage at a festival and Eileen Ivers taught me a tune and I just loved how she played, you know, and she's not a Cape Breton fiddle player. She'd be heavily Irish influenced. But uh, yeah, I think all of that um, definitely changed, you know, how how I thought about myself as an artist. It's so unique for you to have started something creative looking for a creative voice at such a young age because we've yet to develop kind of those insecurities that happen mm. later in our life where we might think more about what others think or do I sound like this person like we have more of that conscious comparing way of thinking or just and and sometimes that can be a good thing. Like you you want to replicate a sound and that's maybe how you learn a technique or a new song. But being so young, there's almost a bit of a clean slate, but not even realizing it. Like that pureness is yeah. is really special, I Innocence, think. Innocence almost. Yeah. That's what 
that's why it worked, yeah. you know, yeah. because we were kids. We loved what we were doing. Yeah. Um, not that there weren't hard moments, uh, but I truly believe we loved performing, you know. Yeah. Um, were you in school still? Yeah, I was so lucky. So I, uh, I went to... Um, a French immersion in Sydney Mines. And the teachers there, I had this amazing teacher, uh, Debbie Stubbert, and she she was like, you know what? Don't worry about Shakespeare. Like, uh, mm-hmm. keep a journal and write me a song. <laughs> <laughs> so I, you know, this was, I remember like faxing in work, uh, homework at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but I, I had a huge amount of support. You know, I remember winning an ECMA and, and the next day being back in school and they had like a big banner on nice. the school. So having that support more so from the teachers, I, I remember I kept it very separate. Like I'd come home and um, it would be, yeah, you know, people would be like, oh, how was your trip? And it would be like, great, you know, but it was just such a, a different, it was an adult life. And then you mm-hmm. were the next day waking up and going to school and you were a kid. And did you, did that feel, like, did you feel separate from your peers because of that? Like, was there a sense of, this is something I'm really proud of and want to talk about, or was it more you wanting to hide it or somewhere in between? Yeah, uh, I think a bit of both. I I think you're really adaptable as a kid. I think that uh, is a good thing and then can be a bad thing. I think from a young age. I took on codependency. So I think, you know, I always thought it was such a skill to just like all of a sudden you're in a new setting and adapt and be what you need to be. Yeah. So I think if anything, it I, I just got really good at practicing that. Um, but it wasn't until I was older and something I'm still working on that. Yeah. So you have all this success at a super young age and playing venues that people still dream of playing and then the the cotters ended in what 2006 i read your wikipedia yeah, before they- <laughs> you came so i got all these stats down That's rose good. has a wikipedia page <laughs> yeah. by the way. Okay. <laughs> so okay <laughs> <laughs> and w- where did you go musically after that yeah i was really upset um yeah when that band broke up because it your whole identity and so much of my life felt out of control at that time my parents separated my brother was really sick um and at the time you know I moved out when I was 14 so I was really like I was lost uh but musically I there's so much freedom in feeling you know lost um so I knew I wanted to you know, uh, experiment with different types of music and genres. And at the time, the Tom Fun Orchestra needed a fiddle player. Oh, nice. And so I remember playing with Tom Fun, and I was terrible. I really believe that, like, I wasn't used to improvising. um, And, you know, it's a whole different skill to just use your fiddle as a way of coloring songs. And so anyway... very, you know, funny to listen back to any recordings out there because it was like, yeah, I was definitely learning how to do that. Um, mm. But they were very gracious and a great group. Um, 
But uh, and I still love their music. Absolutely love Tom Fun music. Great, great gang there. But I remember being in the co-op. Speaking of the yeah. co-op, and this <laughs> older fella, I still to this day don't know who he was. God love him. But he uh, he came up to me and he's like, "Oh, here you're playing the rock music," and um, I was like, "Oh yeah, you know, just." trying something different he was like oh that's too bad and he was genuinely like because it was my step away from the traditional world and i think Mm -hmm. that um yeah that didn't get his approval anyway Mm -hmm. but in some ways thinking back to the cotters like uh we were in such a world of performance rather than the tradition of it so I didn't grow up playing the dances or going to the dances or, you know, my instruction came from the Gala College, which I'm so grateful for having that as my roots. But otherwise, I was just like the music was performance. So even my repertoire now, I'm still trying to dig in and and get more Cape Breton tunes because when you are in a band, you just you play that's the tunes that you play. So my my repertoire was very limited um, and still feels limited, something I'm uh, working on and having fun with now. Does it feel full circle in a sense of having started with more of that perhaps Cape Breton traditional sound and now maybe it means something different, but looping yeah. back, having gone through a bit of experimenting with rock and maybe other genres? Oh, yeah. I, I think... Uh, I think about it as roots, so I'm like right now pushing my my hands out. You know, I the exploration is the roots that go across, and they're really important to me. And I spent all my twenties, you know, uh, musically searching that. But now that I'm back in Cape Breton, my roots are going down again, and so that's a whole new uh, practice. Yeah, a whole new practice. Of being an artist, but I feel more grounded than ever. And I, to go back to your question of, you know, uh, your sound, I'm still learning that. And I think yeah. that's something that's always going to, I want to, it to always change and grow. I want to yeah. stay open to this being a very alive thing. Um, but I'm also just starting to deeply resonate with uh, what feels aligned. We have a very, very special sponsor of this episode that we both love dearly with all our hearts. The Rustic, Rustic Crust Pizza. Pizza! Yum, yum, yum. In Upper Tan Talon, Nova Scotia. These folks started off in a food truck and they now have a fully functioning restaurant. They've got a beer garden for the summertime. They get rented out for private events. They have everything there. Yeah, I can honestly say it's my favorite pizza in the world. Like, really? 10 out of 10, so delicious. It's my favorite spot to eat. And I play a lot of gigs there. They treat me like a god when I go there. They're so nice. It's hard to believe that a local pizza spot is such good supporters of the arts. They're also very supportive of community events. They have taken in a Ukrainian family. They're always giving to fundraising events. They're just amazing people across the board. And you have your art showcase there too. I've got an art up 
up there right now. And I have to say, I love their pizza as well, of course, but their Caesar salad is exceptional. Next level. The pizza is wood-fired, which makes it absolutely delicious. And the tomatoes and flour are both from Italy. They've got an awesome collection of local craft beer and wine, so you're sure to have a great drink to pair with your pizza. All of our guests that come to stay with us, we bring them there for a meal. You can find this sweet little restaurant at 10 Sunny's Road in Upper Tantalan. They're open Tuesday to Sunday year-round, and their website is therusticcrustpizzeria.com. Yeah, you should definitely check it out if you're in the area. You can go to the beer garden, you can go inside. It's a cool house converted into a restaurant. Great people doing great things that we truly are huge fans of, so check them out now. Rustic Crust! Rustic Crust! Back in 2004, Four, I believe, uh, the ECMAs were in Sydney, and my band at the time, we got offered this show, it was a reception for the premiere, and all the delegates were going to be there, it was going to be like this amazing opportunity, and we like practiced eight hours a day for a month leading up to it, for, to play three songs, Yeah, and we like, by the end of it, those songs were ingrained in our DNA, like, we just ate, slept, and breathed them for a month straight. And then at this reception, every single thing that we, that could have went wrong did, like my amp actually blew up. Uh, Our bass player broke two bass strings. I've never seen (laughs) another. there's only four, aren't there? (laughs) Well, he had a five string. He broke a low B, which is as thick as an index finger. I've never seen that happen ever before. And uh, yeah, it was just a disaster. And then right after that, well, we got pretty drunk afterwards because we were upset, but we went to the award show and on stage were the Cotters playing the storm <laughs> and we were, we were pretty upset. And then this, you guys come out and play this amazing song and it was just this magical moment and it uplifted our spirits in no the moment. Way. And, uh, wow. that was my, uh, experience with, with you that you didn't know about, but, uh, Many years ago, and it was uh, it turned turned our night around seeing this amazing performance. So I wanted to thank you, uh, just like you mentioned earlier about uh, apologizing for not making it to that uh, birthday party. I want to thank you for uh, turning our night around in two thousand four <laughs> in a cold February in Sydney. Yeah, that's fifteen year old. You Rose. remember that show? I. Uh, I, I've seen the YouTube video. You yeah. put her on the so. spot now. She can't yeah. say no to your special night. I remember, I do remember they had like smoke on stage. Yeah. So that, but that's about it. You don't remember me sitting down the <laughs> front row there? And Mike, he's getting, that's his like third drink over there. <laughs> yeah. yeah. He's coming oh, around. We brought our own drinks in. Oh, yeah. Couldn't afford to buy them there. That yeah. hasn't changed. We were at the sports banquet there a few years ago with the paper bag under the table. Well, that was at that was five. Yeah, that was still like five years ago. Yeah. Haven't done it in five years. That was a big EC maze for me too, if I remember right. Um, I got kicked out of the Capri because I I accepted oh, yeah. a beer from like Kelt or uh, EC maze were so amazing. Like we were of course underage, so for yeah. us to be part of these events. Sure, they had to go through all this paperwork, and here I'm, like, drinking a beer Uh-oh. at the Capri. So I remember Max McDonald coming outside and just, like, telling me how disappointed he was uh, in me, and I felt horrible. Oh. Yeah, that was a 
That was that's a, tough a though. Wrong be, move. Being well, a young kid, and you're getting all this positive attention, and everyone's being well generous and kind. Like it would, I don't know, it'd be hard to to not take a bear and just. But you're 15. Yeah, that, that's the that's just one of many situations where like you are still a kid in yeah. this adult world. Yeah, yeah, that's an interesting way to describe it because it is a whole it's a whole business. Like you're going to work and you're having yeah all of these influences and opportunities and environments that are not typical or common for a kid did you have somebody with you kind of guiding you or helping you in those circumstances oh, for sure yeah we had we had really good people around us uh whether it was family or friends um my brother was sick for a lot of it and so i was often on the road with just the mcgillivray family mm-hmm. um so, but yeah, I, we definitely had good people around us. Yeah. yeah. So which, okay. So let's go back. The Cotters have decided this is the end of this era. Yeah. What has music since then looked like in your life? Did you, has this always been a full-time thing? Have you gone on to work other jobs perhaps? Have you ever stepped away from it? Yeah, What's I've that ran lifespan? away from it before. Okay. <laughs> So, yeah, I think uh, I, I went on tour with Tom Fun for a short amount of time, uh, and then I started traveling. So I moved over, uh, moved overseas. So I, I moved to Scotland, and then I was only in Scotland for a short time, and then I started working on a sailboat uh, mm. in Finland. Took a job ah. as chef or cook on a sailboat and i didn't know how to cook or sail <laughs> i did uh see that poster there that's a tour i did in finland no way you might have been in some of those places what year that's two, 2012 2012 no wasn't there yet i don't think yeah but yeah yakov said i joined the boat but so yeah i spent three years at sea Whoa, yeah Rose. working on boats um so i really put music down what I thought, mm. you know, I I put it down. Um, like, didn't even have your instrument with you? I did, yeah. My fiddle was always with me. And then on the first boat I worked on, uh, it was an 80-foot sailboat, and we used to strap the fiddle to the engine room door. It was just the safest place to stow it. Mm-hmm. Um, mm. The vibrations, I think, were good for it as well. Um, but I, I would write a lot of music when I was on watch. It was just such a peaceful time and uh so i had just like hundreds of voice recordings on my phone because i would be humming tunes or songs Mm -hmm. into my phone uh and so yeah during that in the three years i did two atlantic crossings uh which is a lot of time to uh to be still and uh, so a lot of music how long does it take to cross on a boat uh it depends where you're leaving yeah. from and where you're going to but generally like a couple of weeks yeah yeah a couple of weeks but there would be times i'd be at sea for like three or four months uh where you wouldn't really get to land often uh but yeah it, it actually was a time especially when i was at sea not when i was working in the yachting industry um that was like a whole other experience and but something that i didn't realize at the time was that was uh, really changing who I was as a person, which I became very valuable and important. But at the time, it was a just a really rough go. It's it's the hardest work I've ever done. 
the loneliest, mm. the most disconnected. But that was my own personal experience. Yeah. But I do remember the moment I decided to leave that industry and I just knew I was completely in the wrong place. We were sailing. Uh, we were based out of Turkey and we had uh, guests come on and the, the plan for the day was to circumnavigate a Greek island. Sounds amazing. But at this time, I don't think I had been on land for like two months or something. So the guests come on and, um, you know, we uh, we start sailing and then we start seeing uh, personal belongings just floating by us because, of, because of course, people were trying to to immigrate and boats were uh, turning over. Um, and so the captain called us into the nav station area and just said, don't let the guests see any of this, keep their attention on board. And so at the time we're, you know, we're pouring thousands of dollars worth of champagne and, you know, and then just watching these personal belongings float by the boat. And that's the moment that I'm like, this is, this is not where I belong. Moral compass kicked in. Oh yeah. It Mm. was, it was a terrible day. Yeah. Yeah. But, uh, impactful. Yeah. Well, I imagine that's a period of your life, that moment in particular, but just having spent that much time alone yeah, will change a person. Yeah. Does it feel like something that was meant to be now that you can look back on it? Oh, yeah. I'm so grateful. And I still love the sea. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I hope, again, in my life, I get more opportunities to go to sea. It's such a humbling place. Um I won't tell my father that. I think he's happy that I'm not at sea. <laughs> <laughs> Don't listen to this, Rose's dad. Yeah, <laughs> from Lower Washaba. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I think. Uh, well, actually, my my cousin Carrie Ann. I remember asking her to do a crossing, uh, and she said, "Oh, I th- I'll think about it." And uh, and then she went to her father Scoggy, who was this legend of a character. Uh, and he sailed every day on the Verdor Lakes and, uh, yeah, very well-loved man. But he said, well, you're either going to be scared to death or bored to death and neither sound like fun to me. So she (laughs) didn't come, but there's no better way to sum up my time at sea, like scared to death or bored to death. And, but in that boredom, uh, that's, you know, the, the stillness, the quietness, that is when a lot of music came to me and. I wrote a whole album called Atlantic, so, yeah. Incredible. Okay, when you're writing, are you writing just the music part, or are you writing lyrics as well? Uh, at the time, I was more connected to just instrumental. Yep. Uh, but now I feel more connected to lyrics. and mm-hmm. But the melody comes really naturally to me, even more so than the lyrics. Uh, I think just being a fiddle player. And yeah. playing a melody instrument, that that's something that I feel uh, ease with. Yes. Yeah. Where did you go after the boat, after you got on land again? Let's see. Uh, so that's when um, I stayed in the south of France for a little bit uh, and still continued to work in the, the industry just in a shipyard. But then I moved to West Cary. Yeah, which... Uh, is a very special place to me. And I first visited, I think, when I was 20. But after the Cotters, 
split up. I was playing music <clears throat> with uh, a couple from from Dingle, uh, and they were telling me about how special the music was in West Cary. And so I, yeah, I traveled there maybe when I was 20, but anytime I had time off from the boat, that was the place I'd go to and yeah. check into. But then I moved there. I spent yeah. three years living mm-hmm. living there. And where did Glenn Hansard come into all this? Oh, Glenn, he's the nicest person in the Graham, world. Graham, Oscar winner, right? Yeah, yeah. So he he's dear friends with Brendan Bagley, who is uh, a very close friend of mine. And so when I was living in West Cary, I became good friends with Brendan. And we uh, we started playing music together. And, uh, and our friendship was was growing and then Brendan was doing an artist residency in Paris so he invited me to go over there's this amazing place uh it's the Irish Cultural Center and it's right in the heart of Paris absolutely magic and so I went over uh to visit him and do some writing I think we were doing a tour of Germany so we needed to get some music together for that and on the same flight was Glenn and so Glenn was going over to meet Brendan, and I think Brendan had a moment of like, oh no, this is like the timing because he was going to be working with Glenn and we had work to do, but we all like landed at, you know, in this uh, cultural center uh, residency at the same time. So that's when I first met Glenn, um, which, yeah, was really amazing. He is like just the most humble uh, selfless, kind person, maybe that I've ever met. He's yeah. really special. Um, and then he invited Brendan and I to record on his album. So yeah. we uh, we stayed in France longer than we thought we would. And and we yeah, Glenn's so gracious, and he and he had us sh- like he shared the stage with us uh, a few times. So wow. I'm hoping he'll come to Cape Breton sometime because <laughs> there's a lot I want to give back to him. That- the movie Once is what, probably one of the best music movies I've ever seen. Yeah. Like that's, it's yeah. just so real. Mm. Yeah. The story is like. And that's him. Yeah. That's, that's who he is. He's just so real. Yeah. And everyone around him, uh, he brings that out in people. Yeah. I remember when that came out and I, maybe I, I may be wrong here, but the director was either going to find an actor and hope that they could sing or find a singer and hope they could act. And they went with the singer and he ended up being a pretty good actor, it seemed. Wow. (laughs) But I, I love that movie and it's amazing. You got to work with them. Yeah, it is. It was an absolute gift. Um, the, the music, when you're playing music with someone of that level, uh, it feels very sacred. It feels very mm-hmm. special. Yeah. And I know collaborating is important to you. It is. Is it? Yeah. I, I feel the same. One of my favorite parts of creating is collaborating. And I guess it's learning from other people. And that's maybe the obvious reason that we like collaborating is you're you're picking up new ideas. But do you feel like it brings something out in you that wouldn't otherwise have happened? Absolutely. Yeah. It's It's such a part of my expression that I really uh, struggle when I don't get that vessel, yeah. if that makes sense. Yes. When I don't get that opportunity, I feel that turmoil kind of building inside myself. Mm-hmm. And uh, 
but it's something that you can't, you know, you can only do so much to make happen and it, it just actually needs to, to unfold in a, in a spiritual way. And a, a group environment, I'm going to I'm going to kind of shift gears here and fast forward a bit because, Rose, you and I have had the joy of spending the last 12 weeks together online. Today's the first time we've finally been able to connect in person, but we've been part of a group of seven women. I want to say seven. I think that's right. Who've been connecting every Wednesday night to journey through the artist way yeah. that we've mentioned before here on this mm-hmm. podcast. It's a book written by Julia Cameron and. Certainly, you're able to go through this program uh, as an individual, but our friend Steph McNamara, who is here today taking some photographs of us, uh, shout out to Steph. She invited us, uh, a group of women who some of us knew each other, some not, but we've come together. We've been consistent every week in going through this program and learning from one another. And I see that as a type of collaboration. There's no, not necessarily this product we're making in the end, but I found just having that consistency and uh, community really had made all of the difference. And so I want to just thank you for showing up every week and let you know just how much you offered to that group. I know through the last number of weeks that we have got to chat that spirituality is something that's important to you and that has come up often and is guiding uh, a lot of your lifestyle and your work. So I'd like to ask sort of how that aspect of your life developed or maybe it was another moment of discovery, like uh, crawling into the log. (laughs) The hollow log. The hollow log. Yeah, yeah. So I I uh, yeah, I just like to hear some of your reflection on that aspect of your life and maybe how it's impacted your creative life as well. Yeah, so I'd love to thank you as well for showing up to that to that space. Uh, so yeah, the beautiful part of the artist's way, it's for a spiritual, it's a spiritual uh, recovery, I guess, for creativity. So that just feels like a, another layer of recovery. I love the word recovery just means to return. Mm. So, you know, whether you're in recovery for substance or behavioral or whatever it is you're just returning returning so um so yeah the beginning of the pandemic definitely the lowest part of my life I had peaks and valleys obviously um and I I certainly see my life as very privileged uh I've had so many opportunities um been very lucky in my life but I really had deep struggles uh that I didn't have the tools until the beginning of the pandemic that's when I started my recovery so uh I was living with uh family friends they are amazing Carol and Jamie they took me in and they gave me such a solid space to do this spiritual work and this growth. And they just gave me this consistency uh, and love, I think, which was, yeah, just really what I needed um, to to grow. So, yeah, I think like so many people, the pandemic just uprooted every part of your life. Uh, but that is exactly what I needed. Yeah. Um, I, I've spent my 20s 
running and I was chasing high to high, whether that was moving countries. I joined the sailboat because no one else sailed. And this was a cool thing. And I, that's that's great to, if that's what motivates you. But what motivated so much of my life uh, was actually addiction. And it was addiction to the next thing. Yeah. And so, and that validation as well. So growing up as a performer, uh, that validation became a drug and people became a drug. And I was someone who was always in relationships and could never feel whole, even though I was living, you know, this independent lifestyle from the outside. I was deeply codependent, always tied to somebody. Um, So when the pandemic happened, uh, it shut it shut my life down and I felt I, uh, I completely hit my rock bottom, but that is not a bad place to be. So when you talk about recovery, um, do you say that relative to the place of, I, you were essentially using that validation as your drug, your Mm -hmm. drug of choice. Yeah. Was the return, was the return back to yourself? Is that how you, Yeah. So, yeah, so my recovery, what that looked like, I found a 12-step program for codependency. Uh, And so anyone who's dealing with any uh, pattern, you know, whether it's substance or whether it's relationships or food or anything, addict, the word addict just means once you start, you can't stop. So what are you powerless over? And if you feel like you're living out a pattern in your life, uh, it's hard to be honest about that because so much shame comes up um, when we talk about, you know, uh, when we talk about something that is that needs healing, you know, and so we want to hide it. But actually now in my life, I just all of that, I just like rip open to the core and go, that is uh, that's an assignment. Let's get into that. Yeah. Let's start healing there. And how can I rip that part of myself open, share, go to the properly appointed person to help me get there? Um, you know, whether it's within my program or whether it's mental health professionals, uh, I've just learned how to take on assignments and really like, not that I never feel shame or, you know, you go through uh, the journey for every single thing you decide to open up, but um, I found a lot of power in that. I recall you, that's why I was sort of jumped when you said the word shame, because it reminded me of, you had used that as like an acronym to spell something oh, out yeah. in the artist way. Do you remember what the... Yeah, uh, should have already mastered everything. Should have already mastered everything. Shame. Isn't that good? It's brilliant, and I think... I think when we think about addiction in particular, because we've had a number of guests who have very graciously and vulnerably opened up about what we might think about as a more, I'll say, traditional idea of addiction. So maybe that's drugs or alcohol. I think what you're describing, Rose, is so important to also highlight because it's common. It's relatable, particularly with artists. And, you know, Mm -hmm. Mike, you and I have talked about this before, too, Mm -hmm. even like the high you might experience after a show and then you wake up the next day and you're just like, now what? And you feel 
almost worse than had you not done that in the first place. Yeah. Because then you're in this position of wanting more, which I think is probably normal. But hearing so many artists in particular talk about this, I know it's relatable for me as well. It is a form of addiction, but we don't necessarily talk about it or think about it in those ways. And then suddenly, yeah, we're on lockdown. The pandemic has happened and you're cold turkey suddenly without having any type of, you know, you haven't necessarily made a decision where I'm going to wean myself off this drug or I'm going to look for a support network. You're just suddenly in this position of vulnerability and left to sort it out on your own. So I I think it's just, yes, very important to make that distinction that this is an example of what an addiction can look like. Yeah. And so was there like in the early days of this happening where you realize like, okay, yeah, we're shut down for two weeks and, you know, psych, two years. Uh, Like when, what tools, I guess, did you look for in those early days when you realize like, I'm not going to be getting the validation from an audience or getting to hop on that plane and have the excitement of that? Do, Do you recall that? sort of transition moment yeah yeah I think uh the full stop felt so violent uh but I was ready and willing and that you know until someone's really ready for a change in their life until they're ready to see the truth I had so many patterns uh that it it wasn't because of the pandemic you know Mm. the pandemic you know, set the withdrawal in motion, but the patterns were a lifetime, a lifetime of patterns. Patterns, like, I remember uh, from the time I'm, like, four years old, attaching myself to people. Um, so this is, like, the, the, they were patterns that I was just ready, ready to face. Yeah. Yeah, face and be rid of. So that, my my healing... Um, you know, anyone who struggles with anything, all addictions and afflictions, a 12-step program, like set aside everything you think you know for an open mind and a new experience because it's it's so deeply personal. And even the word spirituality uh, can mean so many different things to, to everyone. You're allowed to find out what it means to you. You know, it's so much bigger than religion if you find it in religion amazing you know if you find it in nature you find it within yourself um but it is uh we are spiritual beings living a human experience and so to return to yourself uh is just something that i'm so grateful that i had the have the opportunity to do and i wish that everybody came to a rock bottom of their understanding to launch themselves into spiritual work because you see it so much with mental health. We have a mental health crisis. I I truly believe we also have a spiritual health crisis and mental health solutions didn't work for me. It was it was a spiritual program, a spiritual uh, sickness, you know, um, that it's like taking a Tylenol when you're a diabetic. Like it might help, you know, might help your headache or, you know, but it's I need different tools. Yes. So with my spiritual practices, I have learned what I need to be responsible for my mental health, for my anxiety, for my depression. But it 
those answers didn't come until I checked in spiritually. Were you aware of these, I guess we'll say, issues before this so-called rock bottom? Or was it something where you feel like you had to get to this point to really awaken, to, to see what you need to work on? Well, I certainly knew I had, I knew I was different. I oh, was different. Perfect. <laughs> <laughs> I knew I was different with how I dated. I knew I was different uh, with, you know, with how I used even alcohol, you know, which is another layer of my recovery now. But I wasn't willing. I wasn't, I wasn't ready, I guess. Yeah. Um, I wasn't ready until you're ready, until yeah. you're really just sick of being a victim. You know, and that's the point where I got, you can either be a victim or, or be accountable. And it's one thing when you are a child, but then you cross that line and you're an adult. Mm -hmm. And I really believe I'm the root of my troubles. And um, what's, what's hard is when people don't have the tools and when you are powerless, even over your thinking. And so when I think of my anxiety, I become powerless over my thoughts and it takes a spiritual practice for me to tap into more power a higher power of my understanding to return you know return to a sober way of thinking so the 12-step program we just use the aa uh book and you turn drinking to thinking like whatever it is you're struggling with there is a group and because of covid uh it's online so it's just this amazing fellowship um, and the beautiful thing about spirituality is you take what you want and leave the rest. And know? this is, I, I think the word spirituality has become so all-encompassing too, which, which can be great in that it speaks to lots of choice for people. It doesn't have to look one way. I found, I'm going to share my own story here today, which I don't often do. And Mike, I might flip this over to you after. Let's go. But <laughs> we're here for it. <laughs> I reached an unexpected rock bottom around the holidays last year. And there were kind of a series of events that led to it. I was training for a marathon that I was very committed to, very excited about, and had just invested so much of myself, my time, my energy, just that feeling of dedication to something. And a couple weeks before my established race day, I had a, a bad enough injury that I haven't run again since. And the, this exact same scenario had happened to me 10 years ago and like the exact same moment of training. And so I was just so deflated from this disappointment. I also was having a tricky time with my business where it was pre-holidays and historically this was a really lucrative time for me. And my work wasn't selling and, you know, here I was a full-time entrepreneur. And so this is all running through my head and telling myself these stories. And then I got some very, very upsetting news about a friend of mine who was living in a domestic abuse scenario that I, my, I was just, my heart broke for her. I felt really helpless. I couldn't help. She was living far away. And then Mike and I had put hours and thousands of dollars into this holiday trip that we were going to take that on the day that our flight was supposed to leave was canceled due mm -hmm. to weather. So I just found myself 
already feeling vulnerable when this trip cancellation happened. And like, here we are driving back from the airport. It's December 23rd. The next day was Mike's 40th birthday. And I had like this perfect (laughs) day planned for him. In Vegas. In Las Vegas. You know, amongst all these other things we were going to do. So we're driving back to the house. We have no Christmas gifts, decorations, plans, nothing. Like, I was just in this state of... I I cried every day for a week. Like, it it was the worst I had felt in years. Like, it was a true depression. Mm -hmm. And it gave me insight into... I think we've all or certainly know somebody that has experienced some type of anxiety or depression. But... I really was aware of like, oh, like this is actually how lousy that can feel, how scary this can feel. And I was also really struggling at the time with spirituality because I had spent so many years before that really connecting with things like Reiki. Like I practiced that and uh, meditation and breath work and things that were, I was told were going to help me feel better. Mm. And suddenly, in my time of need, these tools that once worked for me no longer felt relevant. So it was like all of this snowballing happening. And the most upsetting part was I felt like I had nowhere to turn to because I was promised that this better feeling would happen if I was just diligent about these practices. And what I ultimately ended up doing was completely separating myself from the influence of others. I was very guilty of, you know, maybe looking for those answers on social media or following accounts or looking for inspirational quotes. And as you're saying, Rose, like you have to find your own tool. And for lots of people, these traditional ways do work. And I'm I don't want to discredit that, but I ended up going back and revisiting old philosophy text that I was studying almost 20 years ago in university because I remember at that time when I was studying philosophy how invigorating it felt to think about things in a different way because so much of anxiety and depression is rooted in your thought process. Mm-hmm. So in reading this old text, it was like my thinking brain was distracted by something that was making me ponder in a new way. And I started every morning waking up and reading philosophy. And I don't know what it was that compelled me to turn to this practice, but that is what slowly healed me and got me out of this very dark place. So I share that because you have opened up about hitting rock bottom and having like the importance of finding your own way. Yes. And so I just wanted to share that, like, this is one maybe untraditional way that worked for me and invite people that it might look different than what you think, your yeah, recovery. Absolutely. And it's to get out of the way and and let that come to you yeah. as well. So thanks for sharing. Mm. Thanks for sharing that. Um, yeah, I I'm reminded in that moment too we have so many plans and designs we have so many plans and designs and they're great to acknowledge your dreams to acknowledge your goals and work towards that but from a place of fullness already is so different than chasing your dreams and striving trying to hold on to something and like going for it that is a very different approach and so what I've 
everything I've let go of in my life, everything I've let go of has become the most beautiful part of my life. And of course there's things I'm still hanging on to. I have plans and designs, but the more I just learn to give that over to my spiritual place, you know, my my first connection was to the to the river, so I was living on the same road that I live on now uh, with Carol and Jamie. And, uh, and I, Carol was like, put on your old sneakers, we're walking the river. And I, that was my first connection to what we're speaking of. But no one could tell me, this is where you're going to find. Right. This is where you're going to find it. You know, and I was literally just listening to um, a podcast on the way here, and they were talking about how these writers left the channel open whether you want to call it source, God, spirit, they how they wrote was from a place of always being connected to this, what we're talking about, and they left the channel open. So we continue to pick up and read. Same with music, but we continue to, we tap into it right away. So that was just, you use that vessel, but there's so many bridges to the same place. And the more you listen to spiritual leaders um the more you listen to you know people talk about it they might have different language but we're talking about the exact same yeah. thing and i do want to say uh mental health practices work for people with mental health problems and we're so lucky to have professionals i it's part of my responsibility now to to go to therapy you know but that all came from deeply grounding myself in a spiritual way and then and then seeing okay what you know when you straighten out spiritually you straighten out mentally physically emotionally financially like it all comes after you know con really connecting yourself to this place where um sister Creta kent i don't know much about her work i know she was an activist and an artist uh, but she she wrote the the rules for artists and the rules for teachers and students. And number one is find a place you trust and try trusting it for a while. Mm. So wherever that is, whatever you trust, whatever, you know, and I really help. I work with women now, I sponsor women, and I work in a women's recovery home. That is the greatest part of my life. And I really help. Um just help them to make their own connection to that place and that will change and grow and it has for me um but you know someone was like oh, I, i've never i don't know what you're talking about you know and they were feeling frustrated and i was like what is it in your life that just makes you feel free that gives you that inner stillness that calmness she's like oh i love riding my bike mm. like that's it that's what we're talking about we're yeah. talking about what you're connecting to, that place you're connecting to, uh, that gives you that internal experience of stillness and calm and contentment and fullness. And, you know, we can't ride our bikes every day, but we can connect to that same place through practices. So prayer and meditation, again, I was prejudiced towards even the word prayer. So what does that mean? It means asking or talking to the the place, the higher power, you know, the place that of your understanding, but it's talking and then meditation is listening. So again, people will have, that's only my understanding of it. And, um, you know, something sh that was shared with me in program, but, 
I'm just talking. It's that conversation. I'm talking and listening. So and I need that discipline every single day because if not, little old Rose falls into restlessness, irritability, discontent. Those are the symptoms of a spiritual disease or a spiritual sickness. And whether you're an addict or not, whether you feel like your life, you lose, you know, um, manageability or not, um, spiritual practices are going to help you no matter what, because we all have plans and designs and they don't always work out. (laughs) And how do you cope with that? And how do you deal with that? And the more you can just turn it over uh, to that spiritual place inside of you, the more ease you're going to feel in your life because we aren't in control of much. And the more I get out of the way, that's literally one of my prayers, like, this is really important to me. Help me get out of the way. And the more I get out of the way, the more magic flows into my life and what I understand to be as magic and the more peace and ease. And the biggest thing that has come from my recovery is, you know, I am still living a human experience. And part of that experience is being really uncomfortable sometimes. Mm. You know, I experience fear and anxiety and resentment and anger. And I have tools for all of that. But I can actually just sit in that now and not act out in the ways that are harmful to myself or others. I can just let it hap- let it flow through me. And I couldn't do that before. I didn't have the tools. I had to fix it. I had a control which often resulted in um, more chaos creating, more controlling, which then leads to amends. And like, you know, you're in this wheel of misery. So yeah. the more I can just sit in the discomfort, um, trusting that it doesn't last, you know, and and just being still. And, uh, you know, it's it's the faith plus action. It can't, you know, if you just rely on faith alone, you know, then that's not doing your part. And then if you just rely on action, um, then then that doesn't work either. For me personally, it has to be, it's the combination of both. And all again, all of this is just something that I learned from a 12-step program. It's incredible how you described prayer as talking and meditation as listening. I've never heard it described that way. Yeah. It's such a beautiful, concise way of giving purpose to those practices. Yeah, I didn't write it. It was something that was given to me. So yeah, you get to it. give it by, you get to keep it by giving giving it away. And I that's a big part of my uh, work right now is I get to keep this uh, sobriety, emotionally, physical, you know, in every in every way. I get to keep it by just sharing it. And, you know, I definitely fell into oversharing it in the beginning because, like, my life did such a 180 that I, like, that's all I wanted to talk about. And um, people don't need it. And some people don't want it, you know, Um even if they are struggling, that's part of recovery, too. Like, just allowing others to be exactly how they are. Right. Good and bad. Like, myself included. Like, I just, let's just allow others. And that's what I wish people, you know, could tap into more. Uh, we we have so much turmoil in life and in the world. And uh, people could just allow others. Um, that's, that's, that's what I want to continue working towards. And again, I do not do this perfectly whatsoever, but I have the awareness now 
And that is what I'm grateful for. I know when I'm being selfish because without doing my spiritual work, I can be very selfish. But when I do spiritual work, I'm very selfless. And so whenever that selfishness or that control or that irresponsibility, um, I'm going to tell you all my top character defects now, but whenever mm. I feel that greed, uh, whenever I feel that impatience, I'm so impatient. Um, whenever I see it crop up, I, I have the tools to turn it over, to pray and meditate, to be of service, get out of my way. And then the experience shifts where I'm back in aligned, my aligned self. And that's the person I love. That's the person I'm proud of. That's the person that continues to just, you know, I, I continue to do my work. And that's the place I like to create from now, which mm -hmm. is a whole new experience because I always needed something from creating. Whenever I would sit down to create, I was taking from that place. I'm like, what can I get? Because I need to feel successful. I need to feel creative. I need to feel, uh, you know, talented, whatever. And now I sit down and create and just like, okay, help me get out of the way. I'm just a vessel because I truly believe that you are co-creating. And what, what, with whom? Like you're co-creating with this magic, this, this spiritual experience. It, it's already done. It's already written. It's already performed you just get to be the vessel and so the more i tap into that the more my experience shifts with being an artist and that's what mm -hmm. the artist way is all about it's how right. to get out of the way how to go back to return to the place of just being a vessel and uh yeah just getting to to watch it unfold it almost takes the pressure off when you think about it yeah. in terms of the work is done yeah, like, I and don't who need are to we to judge? About this. Yeah. yeah, like I spend so much of my, you know, uh, time judging yeah. what is unfolding. How unfair is that to myself and to what is trying to be created, mm -hmm. you know? So when you can just be aware of that and just go, it's none of my business whether this is good or not. Let's just like, you know, birth the thing. <laughs> mm. I want to ask you, Mike, and... Like, speak to this at your level of comfort, because I am kind of revealing something that we haven't talked about mm -hmm. much amongst ourselves or certainly with others. But I know you have talked about, we'll call it almost like a creative fatigue. Like, you have been so prolific and productive your entire life that I, I know that you're kind of maybe at a point in your life where you're thinking about... And like connecting back to what Rose is saying, like we, we think about things like what's the next project going to be? What purpose does it serve? How do you like where do you find yourself fitting into some of these ideas of allowing yourself to maybe step away or allowing yourself just to be the vessel? Like how is this resonating with you? Because I know that some of this you've been processing lately about well, where am I going? It's a little I agree completely with all of it, for sure. But I also, I make 100% of my living from my creations, too. And it's hard to, I can't just, I can't, I want to, at times I want to just like, oh, I just want to step away from like, for a period of time and just recharge, essentially. But it feels like, 
I can't mm. because I don't have the luxury of being able to just step away and survive because I'm like, okay, I got to make money somehow. <laughs> so for me, it's kind of become like, I still, I still love creating and love songwriting and writing. Every, every aspect of creating is like my, my favorite place to be. But I also have to now attach the, what's the value of it is to the outside world. Like I, I can write a song and record it and really like it myself, but I have to, other people do have to like it in some capacity. They're either going to have to buy it or stream it a lot, or maybe I, someone will like it enough to put it in a movie or whatever it may be. But it's hard to detach from that completely and just like let it happen. Even though I know that good things still would happen, but my mind is kind of locked into the, the area that I need to, I need to survive off these creations. So I'm, I'm not giving myself the opportunity to really kind of let it just come as it is. Yeah. Yeah. This is reminding me. So I was just in uh, Memphis. I had this great opportunity to uh to go down there uh part of a music tourism convention so the Gale College sent me and with uh Destination Cape Breton but was really lucky to meet up with Gordy Samson and I don't yeah. think he'd mind me sharing this story but you know I was really kind of talking to him about the songwriting and that life yeah. cuz that to me like he's obviously just made it you know yeah and uh and he said, you know, Rose, it's like being asked to play Big John McNeil every day. And so Big John McNeil is this famous fiddle tune that okay, yeah. um, it's like, it's just a classic, um, but maybe not one people enjoy playing anymore just because it's overplayed and so on. So yeah. so it was just such a, a beautiful way of sharing with me on my platform of what it's like. And he's just, it's a grind, you know, yeah. but he wasn't, he was not complaining and he made yeah. a point of saying, I'm not complaining. He, you know, but it's, it's often a gift, but it's often a grind. Yeah. So yeah. Finding the happy medium, I guess. <laughs> yeah. And I think what, um, you know, whenever I feel like I'm in a grind or I feel stuck, Nothing gets me out of that more quickly than obsessing over gratitude. Yeah. And that's the tool because, yeah, it's, you know, the gratitude is we get to be artists and full time. And it's it's not all, you know, this magic that we're talking about. But the gratitude is how lucky am I to get to do what I love and and find ways of recharging that. Maybe it's not just in music, you know, yeah. music is just, I, I'm guilty of using music as like such a, it's such a limited, um, it's a, it, it's an amazing thing that we resource or way of tapping into what we're talking about, but it's only one of so many, yeah. you know? And so whichever other ways you find of tapping into your creativity and what charges, I think of it as a spiritual battery. So yeah. when I pray, meditate, 
uh, listen to spiritual podcasts, read books that, you know, what you were speaking of. Um, all of that charges my spiritual battery and I stay in check. So, you know, oh, I'm feeling depleted. I feel low. Like I have to plug in. And so, um, what other ways can you find to recharge? And that's only going to make you a better vessel of music as well as mm -hmm. everything else. Um, yeah, but we, we kind of, I, I, I can relate to being stuck musically as being the only way to access this. And it's absolutely not. Yeah. Yeah. It's, I guess it's just been like, 15 years now solid of just hustling and, yeah. and uh not ever stopping just like okay what's the next thing kind of like what you were saying like okay i whatever played this stage and okay now i need to get a bigger stage won this award i want to win a bigger award it's always looking towards the next thing and we've talked about this on here before but um it's it's hard to hard to stay Hard to find the exact way to step away, and I think it. I think just like you're saying, doing other things that you actually enjoy, making the time for those things is certainly important. And I did just receive a grant to work on writing songs for like four months, so yeah, I should just I should just do that and not focus on the whole other side. Like it's hard to let go of and and Rose. Like hearing your story, this was your life since you were a kid. Mm. So, of course, you get in this rhythm of this is the expectation or this is what works. This is the outcome if I do this particular thing. And for you, Mike, same like you've been at this for so long that you're very familiar with the equation. So it's probably all the more scary to just completely step away from it and say, I'm going to allow myself to. Well, first off, just the act of stepping away, but imagine what could be. That's the thing that's hard to give yourself permission to do. But it's also the place where the magic could happen, well, yeah, like the most potential. But especially out of fear. Like, I, I don't want to lose, lose yeah. an audience. I don't yeah. want to step away too long because uh guests are starting to arrive for the party. Oh, okay, yeah, we're having a party. <laughs> <I'll start. laughs> right. I don't want to Yeah, I just don't want to lose out on what opportunities may come about and like people forget about us. So it's So it's, what I've learned about fear, fear and resentment, but fear is uh your brick wall. It's yeah. it limits it limits me more than anything. And it is so sneaky and it can be so quiet. Uh, but when you become aware of your fear uh, and and let go of that fear again, you might need spiritual practices to let go because I need more power to let go of my fear. It's like I can't I can't take the tree out of the ground, you know, Um I need I need more power to remove that tree and the roots and all of that. So, yeah, once that fear need a is back hole, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> we need to yeah get a John Deere on the go. No, yeah. but uh, get one at the co-op. I bet. Yeah. yeah. But yeah, once that fear is removed, um, you tap into infinite power and possibilities compared to our finite selves. Yeah. So you might have just reached. This is what it looks like. On your own power. And that might sound airy-fairy, but until you just try it for a while, 
um, you start tapping into an infinite power. And that is where I really believe. And like we, the Leonard Cohen spoke about it. Um, yeah. You know, how he like, I think it was Leonard Cohen, how he like appreciated how songs would come up in the rear view mirror, you know, and, and he'd be like, can't you see him driving here? Um, I think it was Leonard Cohen, but anyway, there's like, there's these incredible artists that they are, they tapped into this place and it's so much bigger than themselves. And, uh, it takes, takes practice. Um, I'm certainly not where I want to be yet with this, but I'm trusting, I'm trusting that the more I just continue to do these practices, I don't know what, how it's going to come out, whether it's just connections with people or whether it's through music or what, but I'm just trusting that uh, it's it's going to be a really big and filling experience. Mm-hmm. And so just to tie a bow on this and wrap things up, how how has this led you to where you are today? Like, what does your creative life feel like and look like right now? Yeah, so... Uh, the river has been very powerful for me out in Big Bedeck, uh, and it's such a part of my healing. But um, there's this beautiful church uh, right on the uh, Bedeck River, and it's privately owned. And I started a concert series called The Little Church in Big Bedeck. Uh, mm-hmm. It's in the Vickers View venue now, is is the name of the church. Um, but Mary and Norm, they own, they own this building and have been so supportive and so this is our second season, which again has just been such a beautiful experience of I really feel like the more I get out of the way, get out of the way of this uh, creative endeavor, I guess, uh, the more magic it becomes. So just like we have Maeve Gilchrist coming uh, July 7th and she just played the Grammys and like mm. what, you know, they're, these artists who are... Juno winners and, um, you know, just artists I most admire, they're coming to Big Bedeck. Like, that's amazing, you know? Um, And again, I I just get to, I'm just so grateful I get to be a part of it. I don't feel like I'm directing it at all, Um, even though I'm the one that's helping it to unfold. uh, It's 100% coming from a different place. So that's just one uh one thing that's really been wonderful but yeah I'm I I recorded two albums I'm finishing a solo album of songs so that is to be released later this year and then I finished recording an album with my friend Brendan in Ireland and uh and he came over in October and we finished it with Dave gunning in his studio and uh so that album is going to be coming out hopefully this summer so two music projects that feel really special and and from a place of yeah it's coming from my recovered self as an artist you know that's the music is coming from from that place so yeah two music projects coming out in one year um and who knows what else i'm i'm open and excited for whatever else starts to happen it's so exciting yeah this has been amazing to get to know you to hear your story and just uh yeah really dive into some some big topics here so yeah we appreciate it immensely and 
I think we we chatted earlier about maybe you playing a little tune to to end this. Yeah, I'd love to. I'd love to. Let's do it. Rose did it just like a practice run earlier, and I already cried. So <laughs> let's <laughs> bring sh- the tears. Yeah. I'm gonna shut my mic off while I sob That's, in here. And yeah, you make a lot of song. people cry when you're tuned in the fiddle. <laughs> well, gosh, what does that say about me? But I think it speaks to just there's something really wholesome, and I I think it feels very Nova Scotian to me. I know mm. you're just tuning the fiddle, but like to bring somebody to tears tuning an instrument, like that's a lot of power. Yeah, so, my okay. fiddle. I will. My fiddle was made by a uh, fiddle maker, Clay Carmichael. He lives in Tarbet, and uh, but uh, my grandfather bought me my fiddle when I was uh, ten, and the wood from the fiddle came from Big Bedak. Oh. So yeah, uh, it was a friend of. Uh, of Clay's called him and said, "Oh man, I burnt most of the tree before I realized it was this beautiful ripple maple." So literally, the wood came from Big Bedek, which we didn't even talk about. But my great grandfather came from Syria and settled in Big Bedek, right across uh, from where I live now, and they're buried at the end of the road that I live on, and I had no idea. Um, so the whole journey has been bringing me home to to big bedeck so even my fiddle is wow what a treasure from big bedeck yeah so well we're certainly lucky to get to hear a tune and yeah thank you rose so much for really guiding us through this conversation today thanks for having me and being open and uh it's just a joy to meet you both likewise awesome let's let's sing it out or tune it out yeah (laughs) 